This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Well, well, well. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. What the hell is an Imaginarium anyway? According to Wikipedia, Imaginarium refers to a place devoted to the imagination. Uh, There are various types of Imaginaria, centers largely devoted to stimulating and cultivating the imagination towards scientific, artistic, commercial, recreational, or spiritual ends. So when I refer to the conspiracy show as the audio imaginarium, perhaps a bit of a a misnomer, because much of what is discussed on this program is not my imagination or yours. Sadly, it's real. The Bilderberg meeting, which just wrapped up in Copenhagen, is real. Uh, we were told for years it was just our imagination. Then they finally admitted there, there are these elites and monarchs and oil barons and banksters and media moguls who do gather once a year behind closed doors and under a veil of extreme secrecy. Those strange jet plumes in the sky that persist well beyond typical contrails and then rain down aluminum oxide particulates and barium and strontium, they're not our imagination, they're real. Uh, I just happened to love the word Imaginarium, and I was, I was actually inspired by, uh, uh, to use it by the, the film The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, uh, which I, I don't know if you've seen the movie. It's about this uh, mystic Dr. Parnassus who runs a kind of a nomadic theater troupe, and they lure people through a mirror that shows them a world of their deepest subconscious desires where their souls are put to the test. I thought, that's interesting, a mirror that shows them a world of their deepest subconscious desires. Maybe this show is a bit of a mirror that shows us our deepest subconscious desires, a world free of the Bilderbergs and their desires for a unipolar world and the creation of a new feudal age. We're we're the miserable serfs in that scenario, by the way. A world without chemtrails. So Imaginarium, upon reflection, a pretty apt descriptor at that. Speaking of the Bilderbergs, I have a well-thumbed copy of Jim Maher's Rule by Secrecy on my desk here. I'm actually rereading it for 
I don't know, maybe the fourth or fifth time. And uh, this book really served in many ways as my primer, my entree into the hidden history that connects the Trilateral Commission, the Bilderbergs, the Masons, the Great Pyramids. And by the way, Jim Mars, this book, uh, Ruled by Secrecy, underground bestseller, and uh, most, if not all, of Jim Mars' books end up on the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, But Jim Mars is coming to Toronto for the first time, June 21st and 22nd, and this is an exclusive engagement, an intimate meet-and-greet and book-signing event at Conspiracy Culture Bookstore, 1696 Queen Street West, room, uh, or sorry, from 7 to 9. That's Saturday, June 21. And then on Sunday, the 22nd, at the Bloor Cinema, from 3, uh, is it 3 to 6? Let me, I'll get back to you on that. I believe it's 3 to 6 p.m. Jim will be giving a riveting presentation entitled The Hidden History, Secrets that connect ancient astronauts, the Knights Templar, World Freemasonry, the Trilateral Commission, and September 11th. Sorry, it's, uh, the event starts at 1 p.m. My apologies. Okay, so Sunday, the 22nd, Bloor Cinema, 1 p.m. It ends at 3. You want to get your tickets before you miss out because they're going fast. So visit conspiracyculture.com for details on purchasing your tickets or call 416 916 1696, say hello to Patrick and say Richard Serrett sent you from The Conspiracy Show. Jim Mars, award-winning journalist. Over 30 years' experience with several Texas newspapers. In 1999, he began teaching a course on UFOs, perhaps one of the first university-level courses in the nation. He also investigated the U.S. Army's remote viewing program three years before it was publicly acknowledged by the CIA and then produced Alien Agenda. In addition, his book, Rule by Secrecy, has been termed an underground bestseller. His other books include Crossfire, The Plot That Killed Kennedy, which served as the inspiration for Oliver Stone's JFK, The Trillion Dollar Conspiracy, Alien Agenda, The Rise of the Fourth Reich, and Our Occulted History. And Jim Mars joins us on the line from his home in the great state of Texas. Jim, how are you? Hey, howdy, Richard. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me on, and I'm really looking forward to meeting all my friends up in Canada. How is it that you've never been to these here parts? Well, actually, I have, uh, I, but but only as a visitor or passing through. I've flown over Canada a few times on the way to Europe, uh, but this will be the first time I've actually landed, spent more than a few hours, and actually, uh, and I'm looking forward to meeting people because I get a lot of I get a lot of emails and uh, a lot of contacts with uh, readers up in Canada, and you folks seem to be on top of things. Sometimes I think maybe a little ahead of uh, of uh, your American neighbors. <laughs> We're still grubbing around, and you know. Uh, trying to tell ourselves we're in the land of the free, home of the brave. <laughs> well, uh, again, the event starts at 1 p.m., uh, so uh, two hours, and uh, a part of that time uh, you're going to be presenting this uh, PowerPoint, The Hidden History, without you know giving it all away. Just, just get, tease us a little bit about uh, this hidden history, all these things that we don't learn about in school. That's right. Well... I won't say that I'm going to be given an overview, but I'm going to start with the Big Bang. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good place to start. (laughs) And then then end up with, uh, you know, Obama and the the, uh, 
defense defense uh, uh, surveillance state and uh, Edward Snowden. So you, you're going to get a pretty good roller coaster ride, but uh, it's uh, it's going to be hitting all the high points there. Um, touching on a little bit of everything, uh, my latest book, Our Occulted History. Uh, let me quickly point out that when I use the term occulted, um, it, it it has nothing to do with Satan worship or zombies <laughs> or or vampires, uh, things we would normally think of as the occult. It, I use it in the astronomical sense. When the moon uh, eclipses the sun, that's called an occultation. And it simply means that it hides the sun, it masks the sun. So uh, my title, Our Occulted History, is basically the, the history that's been hidden from us. And I say hidden from us because uh, we all know that things, you know, I, I know the attention span and memory, I think, of the average American seems to be about uh, 24 hours. You know, if it happened last week, they've already forgotten about it. If it happened a year ago, they've really forgotten about it. Right, right. Uh, so uh, I think that, uh, but I use the term advisedly. It's not just forgotten history. It's hidden history that has been suppressed, going back to the burning of the library at Alexandria, to the fact that uh, when Napoleon's troops took Egypt, they went inside the Great Pyramid and pulled out devices, machines, equipment, stuff, and then just destroyed it all. Uh, you know, so so much of our uh, history as humankind has been erased and has been hidden away, and it's still going on. Um, I'm going to be talking about some Egyptian artifacts that were reported, recovered in the Grand Canyon back at the turn of the 20th century. Uh, and it was reported in local newspapers, and uh, they even quoted a guy from the Smithsonian. Uh, I've even talked to a fellow who uh, backpacked into the north end of the Grand Canyon and said he found old concrete platforms that he thought were probably used to mount the cranes that, to lift these uh, Egyptian artifacts out of the cave in the Grand Canyon. Uh, and then, But it all got turned over to the Smithsonian and then just disappeared. And today, uh, probably truthfully, I don't think anybody, hardly anybody at the Smithsonian probably truly knows about all this or where it might be. And they say, no, we don't know anything about that. And yet it was reported at the time. And th but then you have to understand that most people think of the Smithsonian Institution as, uh, you know, this great repository of human history. And, and on one level, it is. Right. But on another level, it's, it's a government agency. It's owned by the United States government. Right. It's the gate, one of the gatekeepers that controls yeah. the flow of information. Can they keep secrets? You, you're damn right they can. Uh, at the end of World War II, there was something like 25 or 30,000 people working in one way or another on the Manhattan Project, the project to develop the atomic bomb. And did anybody talk? No. They were, they were good patriotic Americans, and nobody, the public, didn't know about the atomic bomb until uh, one went off in Hiroshima. We just celebrated the 70th anniversary of the D-Day landing, a huge military operation. Did that get out? No. No. How many people were involved in the D-Day operation? Hundreds of thousands and other nations. See, a lot of people just, if you don't understand history, then you don't understand anything. 
uh, D-Day landing, this is, uh, you know, of course, the high point for American and, and British and, and uh, Canadian, Australian. Uh, the, actually, there were 26 nations involved in the D-Day landings. And that's the thing we study about. And if you, you know, go through the public education system, then you pretty well figure that that was what won World War II. But let me point out that when, 20, when the full force of 26 nations landed at the weakest point of the German Atlantic Wall uh, there in Normandy after very, very careful subterfuge had taken place to try to convince the Germans that the invasion was going to be coming at Calais, the shortest distance between France and Britain across the English Channel. Um, 26 nations, everything they had hit the weakest point of the German defenses and had a terrible battle. They, they came close to not making it, you know. And, uh, and it was. It was truly a heroic and magnificent effort, effort. But what people don't realize is that at the Battle of Normandy, we were only facing one-fourth of the German military. One-quarter. Three-quarters was on the Eastern Front right and fighting the Russians. Uh, it's an incredible story. And, but, of course, as, as uh, has long been said, History is written by the victors. <laughs> Whoever wins gets to write the history. And uh, so, that, you know, that's why there is so much about true human history that we don't really know about. I think one of my favorite quotes came from Winston Churchill, uh, who once said, uh, I'm going to look good in the history books. And he said, I know this because I'm going to write them. <laughs> there you go. Listen, uh, we'll take a time out and come back with the great Jim Mars, legendary investigative journalist and the author of so many wonderful books, Rule by Secrecy. That's a great place uh, to get started down the rabbit hole. If you haven't got a copy, pick it up. And don't forget to get a, a ticket to meet Jim Mars up close and in person when he comes to Toronto June 22nd. We'll uh, remind you about details on how to get tickets uh, over the course of the, uh, the hour. Back with more of my conversation with Jim Mars and our hidden history here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The great Jim Mars is with us, and he is coming to Toronto. Uh, he'll be at the Bloor Cinema Sunday, June the 22nd, uh, from 1 to 3 p.m., uh, delivering a, uh, a riveting presentation entitled The Hidden History, Secrets That Connect Ancient Astronauts, the Knights Templar, World Freemasonry, the Trilateral Com Commission, and September 11th. And uh, for tickets, uh, visit conspiracyculture.com, and uh, you can also call... Our dear friends Patrick and Kadena there at 416-916-1696, not to be missed. Uh, here's the best part. After uh, Jim delivers the Hidden History presentation, uh, we're all going to head across the street from the Bloor Cinema to the, uh, the Popper Pub and hoist a few jars with the man himself. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's just going to be a night to remember. So... Get your tickets now because they're going fast. Uh, Jim, I, I, um, one of the things as I was revisiting Rule by Secrecy, and I got to get myself a new copy because this one is pretty well uh, worn out, which is the way we should treat books. I don't like people who keep them in pristine. I write in the margins. I crack the spine. <laughs> use them up and then buy a new one. But um, I was reading the, the, uh, the chapter that, that deals with Korea and uh, the Korean conflict and what is fascinating 
and you describe it so well, and I, I wonder if you could uh, uh, run it by us again, and that is how the Russians were actually prosecuting both sides of the war. Yeah, exactly. That's, uh, that's true, and that, uh, that really kind of blows me away uh, because, uh, you know, we, we always think, well, well, there's a war, you know, there's a side on one side. Um, but uh, the point is, is that uh, the uh, Korean War was run out of um, the United Nations. Uh, and as such, um, the, the, the office that was in charge of directing the Allied efforts uh, there in Korea was uh, headed by a Russian general. And um, the, I don't have his name right here at my... Uh, I think it was uh, Konstantin Zinchenko. There you go. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and then at the same time, the uh, North Koreans uh, were being armed by the Russians and were kind of fighting... Uh, surrogates for the Chinese and the Russians, and they uh, they had Russian uh, commanders, general, a Russian general, that uh, according to some reports is the one that actually gave the orders to launch the attack into uh, South Korea. So you had this odd situation of two Russian generals fighting on opposite sides. But then again, it's really not that unusual once you study world history because what you find is, is that a... Uh, in World War One, for example, a uh, a German banker uh, came to the United States and uh, became the head of the Federal Reserve System and helped create uh, the uh, Paul Warburg came and helped create the Federal Reserve System. Uh, and uh, at the time of World War One, he was head of the Federal Reserve and, uh, as such, was in charge of the war effort for the United States uh, in World War One, while at the same time his brother, Max Warburg, uh, was uh, uh, very powerful within the German Central Bank and was also involved in German intelligence and was helping to run the war on the side of the Germans. Uh, and, of course, this, again, is nothing new. If you study the Rothschild banking dynasty, you find that uh, going back into the 1700s when... Uh, old man Meyer Rothschild sent his five sons out into the world, and uh, pretty soon they had become, uh, one was head of the uh, Bank of England, one was head of the Central Bank in France, and one in Germany, of course, and then Austria and Italy. And they played those nations against each other for perpetual conflict, tension, and warfare, uh, you know, to uh, enrich themselves. Uh, it's really amazing. The same thing is even in our own, the war between the states here in, the, uh, in this country on this continent, what we saw was, uh, and even uh, von Bismarck, the German chancellor, is quoted as saying that this was a war that was fomented by the Rothschilds who supported the South and at the same time supported the North and a Rothschild agent, Dr. George Bickley, created a secret society called the Knights of the Golden Circle. And uh, they, at one time, had thousands of members, and this was very instrumental in stirring up the passions and uh, creating the war between the states. John Wilkes Booth, the man who assassinated 
President Lincoln was a member of the Knights of the Golden Circle. So you have these um, people throughout history who you don't usually hear about, and you certainly aren't taught about this in your schools, and yet they are the ones who uh, create wars and conflicts and shortages and depressions and and uh, financial market collapses and everything else. And uh, as you said earlier in the show, this is not just some conspiracy talk. These are historic facts. It's just that it's not usually presented to people. Uh, you know, Jim, you're... Um I believe you're you just turned 70 not too long ago. And oh, God, really? <laughs> Sorry God. to be the one to break the news to you. Jim, you're 70. <laughs> oh, wait a but, minute. <laughs> <laughs> but I I'm I'm wondering uh if you were just starting out now in the business, you know, as a journalist, what would you do? I mean, because knowing what you know. Let's let's pretend you're 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 25 now and you just graduated from J school, but you still have the knowledge uh, that you do. I mean, you well, you can't I, you wouldn't be able to write for the mainstream uh, uh, press. What would you do? <laughs> it would be pretty difficult. Uh, I guess I was very fortunate because uh, I grew up in a free republic. Okay, and uh, I graduated from college in the mid 60s, and uh, it was in journalism all the way back to the 50s. Uh, and at that time, uh, most of the major media in this country was owned by privately by private families and uh, and individuals, and uh, there were always problems. I know I used to get griped at my newspaper because I thought they were what I called two co- uh, chamber of commerce. You know, they played things uh, played up the positive, downplayed the negative, and kept you know rah rah for the hometown. But I find out there's worse things than that. <laughs> that actually is kind of acceptable uh, when you see what's going on today and some of the outright lies and deceptions and propaganda that's going on. But back to your question, I, I was fortunate because I went through a journalism school that taught me to seek the truth and to look behind the official pronouncements of government and of the military and of uh, you know, whatever, and try to go for the truth, try to find out what's really going on, and then report that to the people. Uh, here's a little word to some of you media owners out there. Uh, everybody's upset because the newspaper readership is uh, just going down the tubes. Even television news is not uh, doesn't have the viewership it used to. Uh, the uh, In fact, the major corporate mass media is now being called the Mediasaurus, okay, because they're old, they're decrepit, and they're about to become extinct. And and deservedly so. And deservedly so, because I guarantee you, everybody I run into and everybody I know is thirsty for knowledge. They really want to know what's going on, but they want to know the truth, okay? And, And this is good, because... Uh, as Roosevelt said, you know, the, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And the analogy I'd use is if you're out walking in the woods and you hear a rustling in the bushes, you get fearful because you don't know what it is. You don't know if it's an attacker or maybe a bear or whatever. So that does generate fear. Now, when some other hiker steps out, or even if it's a bear, at least you know what it is and you can deal with that. You can climb a tree or run away or whatever, and it's not nearly as fearful of the things you don't know. And so truth 
is the way to go. And there are those who argue, well, it's difficult to find the truth. We'll never know the truth. And yes, the truth is very elusive, but you can at least try for it. And my message to the media owners of today, if you want to recapture your viewership and your listenership, try telling the truth. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, as you point out, again, I go back to rule by secrecy, uh, because this is where it all started for me in large measure. Uh, uh, that and, um, uh, um, well, a, no- a great number of books, but let's focus on rule by secrecy. Uh, Tragedy and Hope is the, the title I was searching for. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, you point out that a conspiracy is not a theory. It's oftentimes a crime. And I've always wondered, you know, why uh, – and I've talked to reporters – I've talked to you know newspaper columnists, major uh, you know daily newspapers in the United States and Canada. I've asked them why don't they cover you know the, the stories that people are interested in, and they they'll say, well, that's a conspiracy, and they ha- they admit it, they openly admit it that they have an aversion uh, of of conspiracies. They don't want to talk about them. They dismiss them. Uh, they have a bias against them. And and uh, to me, it's just I, I get the sense they don't understand what the word means. And, and <laughs> no, they don't. Well, here, I hear, here's the thing. Let's quit calling things conspiracy, okay? And let's just say, well, there was some collusion involved, you know? Because see, they haven't they haven't tarred the word collusion like they have conspiracy. Right, uh, right. They did quite. If, if there was any one good thing to come out of the attacks of 9/11, it was the fact that the term conspiracy kind of got rehabilitated because there's really no argument that 9/11 was a conspiracy. The the argument is whose conspiracy was it? Right, right. That's right. And 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 they and I, I when I say they I whatever you know if you want to call it <laughs> the, the elites or the, the media yeah the media owners or whatever they want us to believe that conspiracies are only concocted uh, by people in other lands uh, who wear turbans or <laughs> or you know who pray to another god Th- those are the only people that that uh, that they, concoct yeah, conspiracies. They're the only ones dealing conspiracies, and yet. In the courts of the United States and in Canada, uh, crime figures are routinely uh, convicted of conspiring <laughs> to, to commit criminal acts. I've I, led, been led to conclude uh, that uh, were, were Watergate to take place today – and I mean we've had worse than Watergate taking place today. Oh, yeah. I mean I, I look at the, uh, the, administ- the Obama – uh, administration as the worst parts of Jimmy Carter and Richard Nixon combined, uh, and and uh, so many scandals. But if we had a Watergate today, uh, and Woodward and Bernstein went to their their uh, their newsroom and said, you know, this is what's going on, they'd get laughed out of the uh, the newsroom. They wouldn't get anywhere. That's true. Uh, and of course, you have to understand that Watergate was a, an assassination. Okay, uh, except. Uh, Unlike uh, John F. Kennedy, it was not a physical assassination. It was a political assassination. And uh, the beauty of it was is that they didn't have to create anything. They simply lifted the – and when I say they, Woodward and Bernstein were the means. Okay, they didn't start it. Uh, The people behind Deep Throat and people who were saying, we've got to do something about Nixon, he's getting out of hand, uh, they're the ones who decided he had to go. But the country was still reeling uh, in 72 from the assassinations in the 60s, Robert Kennedy and and, uh, Martin Luther King, John F. Kennedy. 
And so they, all they did was lift the curtain and show, showed what Nixon was doing. And everybody threw a fit, and uh, he got threatened with impeachment and resigned as a result. Uh, so it was a political assassination. And what kills me is, is that today I think we probably could have another Watergate and everybody would just go ho-hum because when you get right down to it, uh, it was a, a minor burglary of the Democratic headquarters uh, with people who were operating on behalf of Nixon, uh, political operatives, uh, trying to get some information, find out what the Democrats might have to use uh, in the upcoming election. T today, that's kind of like, yeah, okay, politics, so what? Uh, what we see today is uh, Bill Clinton. He gets impeached. Why? For selling our nuclear secrets to China? A treasonous activity? No. He gets, he gets impeached for having sex with, with an intern. Give me a break. And, of course, Obama, you know, we haven't got time tonight to list all of the legitimate reasons to impeach Obama. So, you know, Watergate today would be, be kind of a ho-hum. You know, who cares? In your 70 years, Jim, uh, I, I'm sorry, I, I, I hate to keep <laughs> reminding you, but no, but in your in your life, in your storied life, have you ever experienced a moment in history like this that uh, perhaps has, has you as concerned for the United States, the fate of the United States and, and the world? No, no, it's uh, there's always been problems. There'll always be problems. But uh, and, and let me preface by saying this. You know, I was always taught you never want to publicly talk about religion or politics, you know, because people get upset and then they get mad at each other and blah, blah, blah. And there is some truth to that. So I try to stay away from politics. But, you know, what we're talking about here, Richard, is not politics. OK, politics is a normal human activity. Uh, let's say you and I, we both agree that we need to build some new highways there in Canada. OK. So, but then we argue over who, how, and who's going to finance that. Now, that's politics. Jim, let me just jump in here. We're, we're going to take a time out. We're going to continue this conversation on the other side. Okay. Jim Mars, New York Times bestselling author, legendary investigative journalist, here on The Conspiracy Show, here in Toronto, June 22nd, Bloor Cinema, conspiracyculture.com for details. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay where you are. And we are back with Jim Mars, who is coming to Toronto June 22nd, Bloor Cinema, 1 to 3 p.m. And then we'll hoist a few across the way. Uh, and this is a very, very rare opportunity uh, to meet uh, Jim up close and personal. And uh, he's going to be delivering what promises to be a riveting presentation entitled Our Hidden History. Uh, now, we were talking politics or or. What, what's going on right now? We're, we're distinguishing between politics, which is a fine pursuit. Yeah. It's what we, yeah. we are Nothing political. Nothing intrinsically wrong no. politics. But here's the thing. Uh, when we start talking about the cover-ups of the Kennedy assassination of 9-11, of uh, the things that are going on, uh, the uh, Benghazi situation, you know, which is uh, uh, argued back and forth, and, but then uh, in, involved in that are, are lies outright lies. Now we're talking not politics, we're talking criminal behavior. And uh, I think it's not only uh, acceptable, I think it's necessary to pub ha publicly air uh, criminal activity. 
And uh, because if you don't, if you hide that away, if you say, well, that's politics, I don't want to get involved in that, then the criminal activity continues and gets worse and worse and worse. Uh, let me... Um... I never, I never, Richard, yes. in my life, going when I started off in journalism, uh, I never thought that I would live to see a day when in the United States of America they could arrest somebody and hold them indefinitely uh, with no writ of habeas corpus and without being charged with a crime and without the right to have legal representation. Nor did I ever think the time would come when the President of the United States could decide that uh, he doesn't like you and he thinks you might be some sort of terrorist so he can order your death and nobody seems to be able to do anything about it. Yeah, pretty that shocking. And totally what's, anathema to everything I was taught America stands for. And what's even more shocking is the lack of outrage. Yes, but then uh, that's what I'm working on now. Uh, I'm going even further than my book, uh, The Trillion Dollar Conspiracy, which points out that the American public today is dumbed down through an inadequate education system, uh, inadequate knowledge, uh, it used to be when I was in school, we were not taught what to think. We were taught how to think. And today, it's simply recitation of facts and figures and uh, so that you can look good on a test. And today, the idea seems to be, well, they don't really need to know anything. They just need to feel good about themselves. And, of course, I question, well, you know, how good are you? Uh, about yourself you're going to feel when you're 50 years old and you can't read or write very well and you can't do numbers and you're, all you're doing is selling pencils on the street corner. Uh, Greg Pallast, uh, I'm a great admirer of, of uh, his investigative work. I think he's one of the few investigative reporters out there still working. I agree. And uh, he, he calls the public education system triage, uh, where, where students basically are, are being taught to stack boxes. Uh, yeah. Surfs for the new global economy. Yeah. Now, now, anyone, my wife has, has re, just retired from a lifelong as a high school teacher in public schools. She'll tell you. She watched it all happen, and she totally understands. Now, I think anybody who is familiar with our education system would agree to all this. Again, where I differ is, I'm telling you, that, has been, that situation has not just happened. It was created, set up, and is being pushed by a wealthy elite globalist, as they call themselves, uh, who that's what they want. John D. Rockefeller, who founded the National Education uh, Board, which has now evolved into the National Education uh, Association, uh, is quoted as saying, I don't want a nation of thinkers. I want a nation of workers. So they want to train people, give them just enough education where they can perform well on the assembly line or in the cubicles, but they don't want them really knowledgeable or thinking for themselves. During the, the at the height of the Cold War, going back to the fifties, I, be, uh, I believe it was during the Eisenhower administration, or maybe during Truman, Truman's administration. Was there not an agreement between the United States and the Soviet Union, the supposed Cold War enemy, to essentially merge the education systems? Well, yes, and both of them are based on the old Prussian education system, which was uh, developed in the 1800s in Prussia with the idea of turning the pupils into future soldiers. 
Okay, so that in technically on technical aspects, they'd be quite educated, but they were the rest of it was just taught to be conformist and to move right along. And if you think about it, uh, the movement today in schools, for example, is to have the kids wear uniforms or some sort of uh, similar clothing because we don't want the rich kids to stand out from the poor kids. And we again, which is diversity blah 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 and yet what they're doing is the same thing that the armies do of all the countries the very first thing any army does when they induct a new uh, draftee is they shave off all their hair and then they put them in a, the same old baggy uniforms and they tear down the individual so that and then they train you over and over and over to the point to where they, you, you say okay go over there and kill that guy you'll just go do it and uh, they're, they're practicing the same uh, brainwashing techniques in the school systems today. Not quite as blatantly, but it's still, that's the whole thing, conform, conform. Uh, and uh, I started running into this uh, uh, even back in college. I know I had a history professor one time, and he gave us a test, and his question was verbatim. He said, what do you think are the four major causes of World War II? Well, I wrote this whole little essay. I'm going to get the answer to that, Jim, when we come back. Okay. I can't wait to hear this one. Jim Mars, the great Jim Mars, back with more on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Jim Mars stays with us, the author of Rule by Secrecy, The Rise of the Fourth Reich, Alien Agenda, Crossfire, the plot that killed Kennedy, which, of course, served as the inspiration for Oliver Stone's epic JFK. Uh, and uh, the trillion-dollar conspiracy, on and on it goes. Uh, perennial New York Times best-selling author, investigative journalist Jim Mars, also coming to Toronto June 22nd at the Bloor Cinema for a very special exclusive engagement at one, uh, 1 to 3 p.m., June 22nd. That's a Sunday. Tickets, conspiracyculture.com, 416-916-1696. All right, Jim, so your history teacher asked you in this essay, what are the four causes of the Second World War? It plainly said, what do you think are the four causes of World War II? And having been a kind of a World War II aficionado pretty much all my life because my, uh, my dad and his brothers all served in the war, and uh, came back, and uh, uh, three of them served in Europe, and one of them served in the Pacific. And, of course, they all came back, and as a young kid, I just wanted to hear everything, you know. And, by the way, that's when I first learned that there were deals going on, okay, because one of my uncles was a forward artillery observer for Patton's Army. And uh, something came up, and I was talking about how the Russians uh, took Berlin. He told me that he personally had driven... Uh, his jeep around in the outskirts of berlin okay and i said why well, i didn't know we ever got to berlin he said yeah we could have taken it he said but we got orders to pull back a hundred miles and then just sit there and wait uh for the russians to go in and and fight uh for every little square block to take the capital of berlin and so it's like huh so this, I already knew there was deals going on. But anyway, back to my college professor. He says, what do you think of the four uh, causes of World War II? And I wrote a nice little essay, and I got back and said, F. 
So I went up and said, what are you talking about? And he began to say, well, blah, 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 it's this, that, and the other thing. And it became very clear to me he had not phrased his question correctly. He didn't care what I thought the four causes of World War II was. He wanted to know what he had told me. That's right. And that's education in a nutshell. He wanted you to regurgitate the party line. He wanted you to regurgitate the party line. Exactly. So if you can, if you puke, you can pass. Yeah. And we see, see a lot of people don't understand, particularly people who have not gone to college, and even people who go to college, they don't quite get it. But uh, this is what's causing a great deal of problem in our societies today. Let's say you got a bright young kid, and he wants to go into chemistry. And so he's in high school, he's really into it, got his little chemistry set, and he's doing all kinds of good stuff. So he gets to college, and he starts signing up for a degree in the chemistry department. You know, well, pretty quickly he runs into this very thing I was just talking about. You go along with what the professors say, and uh, you play the game. And if you don't, one of two things happens, you know. If you, you, uh, if you play the game and go along with the conventional history conventional theories, then you do well and you prosper. You make good grades. You'll probably get a teaching fellowship, and then you get to be a, a, a teacher's aide, and then you get to be a professor, and then you keep your nose to the grindstone and keep harking the party line. You'll become a tenured professor, and you'll have a nice life, and you might even get some papers published, and you're going to do fine, okay? Now, if you, but if you balk, you say, well, wait a minute, why is it that way? How about this? Maybe we could do that. Then you're a troublemaker, and you have trouble getting all the way through there, and you may or may not even graduate, and if you do, uh, you're not invited to be a professor. You're not invited back into that whole circle. And let's say you go that way, and then so you end up uh, getting a job with some corporation uh, in their chemistry department, okay? Well, there, again, they have certain ways of doing things, and they get upset if you want to do it some other way. Plus, you have to sign contracts that say that if you should accidentally uh, invent something, it belongs to the company, <laughs> And and also that you are told explicitly that there are some areas you're not even supposed to go into. You stick with uh, the tried and the true. And, and this is why uh, we no longer have huge technological breakthroughs like we did in the 1800s. You look at the people who actually developed some of the most earth-shaking technologies like Alexander Graham Bell and Thomas Edison, and these guys didn't have any big degrees. Look at the Wright brothers. They had a bicycle shop, but they decided, let's figure out how to fly, and they did. They were the heretics. Way, yeah, I bet you and most of your leader, reader, uh, listeners may not know this, but the New York Times, the uh, newspaper of record mm -hmm. for the United States, refused to write about the Wright brothers for more than a year after they flew at Kitty Hawk because their science experts told them that heavier than air flight was impossible. Oh, my. And these guys are just, you know, flakes. And they probably wouldn't have reported on it then, except that the Europeans, particularly the French, got really interested, invited the Wright brothers over to France, and they went over there and flew. And the European media, you know, was filled with the stories about man is flying, and the state old New York Times had to follow suit. Here's something I've always wanted to ask you, Jim. Speaking of the New York Times, exposing things as you do, it's always intrigued me. How is it? I mean, 
I mean, you deserve to be a New York Times bestselling author because you're a, a damn fine writer. There's no question. But I'm thinking a lot of people must be asking if there is this control, this lockdown control that the elites have, how are you able to have bestselling books and get the message out there? Why didn't they – why don't they stop you I guess is what I'm asking. Why do they allow Jim Mars to keep writing these wonderful books and getting on the New York Times bestselling list? Well, there's a couple of things. Uh, one thing, uh, as a reporter, uh, you know, I was constantly told, hey, uh, I was, they tried to get me off of this stuff. They, you know, I know at one point I was accosted by an editor in the hallway, and he said, uh, he said you really ought to stop writing about nuclear power. And I said, well, well why is that? He said, well, uh, bah, 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 you know too much about it. <laughs> as if, yeah. Well, that stop me from doing it. Too smart for and your own he good. Said, he said, why don't you just stick to writing those really fun little uh, sidebar stories and feature stories, you know, because I did that, too. One of my first stories that ever got big, actually got some national play, was uh, uh, the story of a woman who uh, the birds were eating her house and come to find out that her house had been built with bricks and the bricks had been made and somehow or another, the, like bird seed, essentially had gotten mixed up in the brick and the the birds would whole flocks would come and peck at her house you know and that even got picked up of course by the tabloids but so what i found was is that my editors tried to discourage me from writing about serious uh, and in-depth topics but if i had that was again back in the free republic if i had the sources and if i had the the truth and if i had people quoted then there really there wasn't much they could do other than just overt censorship, and that wasn't going on back then. Okay, now as far as my books, uh, I was just extremely fortunate in that there was a uh, senior uh, vice president of Harper Collins uh, who uh, had read my book Crossfire, and at the and was thinking, I wish somebody who could dispassionately and in a journalistic manner examine the question of UFOs, you know. And he was, just as he was thinking all this, my proposal for Alien Agenda hit his desk. And so he bought that, and uh, he got published, and he got, uh, of all my books, it, it, it did not hit the New York Times bestseller because that was a book about UFOs back in the 90s when nobody wanted to pay any attention to it. But nevertheless, it sold well, and it sold for a long time. In fact, it's still in print, and I've been told it's the top-selling nonfiction book on UFOs in the world. It's been translated into about a dozen languages. So at that point, from then on, then I came back and said, how about I write a rule by secrecy? And he was really fired up and wanted to do it, and he had the clout to actually push it on through. Uh, and, of course, HarperCollins is part of News Corp. Uh, and uh, so they, at, at that point, of course, they were more interested in the bottom, pro, the profit line than they were uh, being politically correct. And so that led to other books like uh, uh, Rule by Secrecy and Rise of the Fourth Reich. And by that time, now it's a situation where I think, I think they just as soon probably not publish me, but... They haven't figured out how to explain to the secondary and tertiary management level why they won't publish a writer who's had four New York Times bestsellers and has sold a lot of books. Have you ever been 
uh, harassed, for example, given a hard time trying to get on a plane to fly somewhere? Uh, yeah, yeah, kind of early on. That's why I've been hesitant trying to, to go out of the country. I, I'm not so concerned going out of the country, but a little concerned about trying to get back in. Uh, and uh, maybe, hopefully, it's eased off some now, but I know in the uh, early 2000s and stuff, uh, even though here I was just a little old guy, you know, with maybe one little suitcase, and uh, I, they would always grab me and pull me out for the intensive search, you know, and I just wanted to grab them and shake them and say, what's the matter with you people? You go back to the Munich massacre of 1972 and uh, come forward. You're looking for young Arab males. <laughs> You're not looking for old fat white guys, you know. Well, listen, uh, we can't wait for you to come up here, and uh, I'm especially looking forward to taking you out to dinner. Uh, what do you say the two of us grab a steak? Uh, do you like steak, Jim? I'm guessing from the great state of Texas. Hey, I'm you must love steak. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but but uh, let me hasten to add that, I, I, you know, growing up in Texas, steak was, you know, we had steak for breakfast and steak, hamburger for lunch and another steak at night. And uh, But I am now wised up some, and I have uh, significantly cut down on my intake of, uh, of, of beef. Uh, and uh, I'm saying that because I would advise people to, to go uh, sparingly on the meat. Well, listen, whatever you want. Uh, if you want to, I, I can't I'm imagine. I'm always up for good steak. I was guessing maybe uh, it would be steak over, say, sushi. I can't imagine uh, Jim Mars eating <laughs> hey, sushi. But... Hey, down here in Texas where I live, they don't call it sushi. They call it bait. <laughs> <laughs> Enough said. All right, uh, Jim, listen, thank you for, your, uh, for dropping by this evening, and uh, we will see you uh, June 21st at uh, Conspiracy Culture for the book signing, and then the 22nd at the Bloor Cinema. That's going to be a good one. Can't oh, wait. yeah. I'm going to cover so much stuff. That I guarantee you, your head will be reeling by the time you leave. Say, uh, just uh, before we let you go, just have about 30 seconds here. What are you working on these days? Kind of the same thing. Uh, I'm writing about uh, a culture of death. Not that it works towards death, not towards life. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's pretty much our culture right now, isn't it? <laughs> oh, oh, rats, you've read my book. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jim, thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. I look forward to seeing you. Same here, likewise. All right, the great Jim Mars. And, uh, yeah, that's going to be quite an evening. So, again, conspiracyculture.com for ticket information or 416-916-1696. Say hello to Patrick and Kadena and get your tickets before they're all gone. And my website, richardserrett.com. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth. And welcome. My name is Richard Serrett, and this is The Conspiracy Show. Congratulations, you found us somehow, some way. Thanks for inviting me into your home. Last week on the program, uh, privacy expert Mark Weinstein was here, and we were discussing the likelihood that the Central Intelligence Agency was involved in the funding and development of social media companies like Facebook. makes a great deal of sense when you think about it. And after the program, I received a, uh, a tweet from someone pointing out how interesting it was that Weinstein mentioned Facebook a number of times in conjunction with the CIA, but never once mentioned Twitter. Uh, now, I'm not actually sure if that's true, whether Weinstein didn't mentioned Twitter. I haven't had time to go back and listen to the interview again, so maybe Twitter was mentioned, maybe it wasn't. But get this. 
The CIA, as of May 6th, now has joined Twitter, and they sent out their very first tweet. Let me share it with you, and I've also retweeted it at Richard Serrett. The CIA's first tweet reads, The CIA can neither confirm or deny that this is our first tweet. Who'd have thunk it? The boys that botched the Bay of Pigs invasion, then killed Kennedy, the boys that brought you the gonorrhea experiments in Guatemala, have a sense of humor. How wonderful. Anyway, I'm now following the CIA on Twitter, and I sent them an invitation for their director, John O'Brennan, to come on the uh, program, and then I wrote that Edward Snowden says hi. Incidentally, the CIA has over a half million followers in only... uh, Well, less than a month since they've been up on Twitter. Anyway, uh, later in the program, we'll do our paranormal roundup, paranormal news roundup with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Some great, great stories in the news, including rather disturbing past life memories of a three-year-old in the Golan Heights. Three-year-old boy who remembers his previous life. He's only three, remember. And he has pointed out that in his previous life as an adult, he was murdered. He, went, he took the elders of the village to the grave. It was exhumed. There was a murder victim found in the grave with an, an axe wound to the head. He even knew the name of the murderer. The elders of the village confronted the man with the evidence, and of course, he denied. But uh, anyway, we'll give you more details when Rosemary Ellen Guiley joins us uh, towards the bottom of the hour. A couple of weeks ago, I opened the show on a sad note. Just before I went on air... I was informed by my colleague and friend here at AM740, uh, 740 Zoomer Radio, George Chinescu, that he had been told he had stomach cancer. And I, uh, I told George that night that I would be praying for him. And that, uh, that doesn't mean a lot to some people these days, but I knew it would mean something to George, and I did pray for him. But the other thing I did was I immediately sent an email to my friend, Douglas James Cottrell, world-renowned medical intuitive and energy healer, and I asked Douglas to come into studio as soon as he possibly could to perform a laying on of hands on, on, on George. And, and Douglas informed me. He got right back to me. He says, I'm in Spain on tour, uh, but I will immediately send out a healing intention and, and some energy, healing energy, remotely. Well, to cut to the quick, a few days later, George Janescu emails me because he promised to to update me. He said he went back to the doctors. They couldn't find the cancer. The next week, which was last week, I come into studio, and George informs me that he has, for the first time in three and a half months, been pain-free. Three and a half months. He's been in horrible pain, although he never told me. Uh, So now... My dear friends, George Genescu joins me in studio, as does Dr. Douglas James Cottrell, fresh from his tour of Spain. Gentlemen, how are you? Dr. James and I just have had a wonderful session, Richard, and uh, the laying on of hands. Uh, I, I asked him, what should I be feeling? And he just said, uh, I, I don't know. That's the healing has come through me. And I said, are you the conduit? And he said, if you want to look at it that way, yes, he is the conduit. But on the previous reference, Richard, uh, for three months and more, I have had this unbelievable 
uncomfortable, painful stomach. I felt something growing there. And in my mind, I was certain and I had a fear that it was cancer. And now, this is almost two and a half weeks. And uh, as I was telling the doctor, I had a monster pizza <laughs> just to celebrate. Well, uh, and Douglas, uh, Douglas James Cottrell, welcome once again, my friend, uh, back from Spain, and we're great to have you in studio. Quite a story. Now, the, the night I sent you that email, how soon after you received that from me did you start sending out these, these healing energy? Well, it's always a pleasure to be here, Richard. And, uh, you know, uh, George received a uh, Class A miracle healing. These are rare, and these are, uh, uh, they have telltale, uh, um, I guess, results where instantly a healing occurs, pain is abated, and a physical change happens at an accelerated rate. When I got your email, I immediately uh, put my hands in the air like I'm indicating now, which is about shoulder height. I take my deep breath, I visualize George, and I sent the energy through my hands to him. Now, this energy that's collected in the air, uh, I liken it to electricity or lightning. And so if you you believe uh, or see it in, in such a way that God Almighty is like electricity, you can kind of grasp the idea that this is a force that can be manipulated or sent. But the force itself is independent. It does whatever it does. And that's why when George asked me uh, uh, how he should feel, I said, I don't know, because who am I? You know, I'm just the, the, the conduit. I'm, I'm the person. I might You're far like, too humble, doctor. I mean, well, I'm... Well, i got to explain it this way, George, because... Uh, ego is the is the great deterrent that stops people. When you start to think you're the source of this divine creative energy, you get in trouble, and you get your little wrist slapped every now and so. <laughs> so, when you're dealing with the big guy, you have to be very careful. But the idea is that uh, when you asked me on the email, uh, I immediately sent the energy to George, and then for the next day or two, whenever he would come to mind, I would send energy to him uh, by doing the same thing. This is the way we teach people how to be healers, and many, many, many people are natural healers. In other words, they have this ability to do laying on of hands, to send energy out, uh, call it energy, you can call it Reiki, you can call it uh, therapeutic touch, you can call it prantic healing. There are a bunch of names. But the reality is that as a person, as a human being with a soul, you're able to contact in spiritual levels something that's able to be transmitted to someone else through the air or, as we did tonight in the studio, by specifically putting my hand in certain places. I'm, I've been doing this for 40 years, so I'm fairly knowledgeable of how to put energy into a body uh, and how to create it around me. I mean, there's been pictures of me, George, with like a cloud behind me or like an angel standing behind me, as somebody described it. So I'm able to collect this energy. I reach out in the air and I grab it and I put it or direct it more exactly into a body. Even from 5,000 miles away? Well, this is the whole secret. God is everywhere, as we're taught in the Bible. I'm a Christian, uh, raised as a Christian, but I'm, a, I'm an interfaith minister. All the great religions have room for spiritual healing or spiritual powers or intuition, whatever you want to call it. But 5,000 miles away... Uh, Electricity goes around the planet. Uh, you know, uh, you know, it's it's uh, 
there's no limits. There's no, uh, there's no finite thinking. And this is the hard thing for most people and why they go off in different religious directions and beliefs. They, they try to define God in a finite way. And I have a fundamental uh, belief that says that's a mistake. Douglas James Cottrell is uh, with us in studio and a remote uh, viewer, uh, medical intuitive, uh, energy healer, some would uh, say faith healer. Uh, George Janescu, my uh, good colleague here at AM740 and the host of Big Band Sunday Night. George, take us back now. Uh, a couple of weeks ago when I came in here and you told me that um, – I had this great fear of cancer, yes. Right. Now, um, how soon after that – I mean that Sunday night, I immediately uh, – I, I came into the studio. I sent the email I said immediately. by Tuesday. By Tuesday. I was feeling no pain and it was a joyful uh, – I, I got – out of bed, uh, I literally flipped onto the onto the floor. Whereas before, I had to sort of rock and then get you know get the momentum to go. But more important, Richard, is that I knew right away that what was bedeviling me, which I feared was cancer, I knew it was gone. Now that's the first time I've been that positive. And I realized what was happening is a couple of years ago, the doctor healed my my lower back. Yes. And uh, I wasn't listening to the program. I was trying to find out a ball score. <laughs> and my team eventually lost, the Dodgers. But uh, I, I got pulled my car off Highway 11. Uh, I signaled, of course, did it safely. And I thought I was having a heart attack, this tremendous rush of pain. No, beg your pardon, heat yes. in my lower back. Yeah, let's, let me take uh, viewers or listeners back. This is going back maybe three, four years ago. We were at the other studio on Queen Street. And you came hobbling into the studio. I said, George, what's wrong? And you described it was it arthritis or something down your back and down your leg. Was, yeah. And you were in terrible shape. And as it happened that night, Douglas was coming in. You were coming in to, this, to do a show with me at 11 o'clock, Douglas. I think I phoned in that night, Richard. I think I was on the phone. I don't know if I came in the studio, but your, your memory's better than mine. Uh, seems to me you were, but I, I could be wrong. Anyway, you were you, – uh, I, I said to you on the air, I said, my good friend George Janescu is, is in great pain tonight, and he's heading uh, home as we speak. Could you send out some healing energy? Now, George always faithfully listens to this program on the drive home. Except that this night, one time. This I was one looking time. for a ball score. <laughs> so he, he had no idea what was happening on the air. And the next week I came in, George, I said, George, how are you feeling? He goes, it's the strangest thing. And then you told me this story. I thought I was having a heart attack. And then I realized it wasn't because I stepped out of the car with such ease and without pain. And I said, oh, I can't be having a heart attack. And I didn't understand it at all. Next Sunday, you and I had a conversation, and you said, do you realize that you received a healing miracle? I, and I played the clip of, of you, Douglas, right. on the air, sending out this healing energy for George for the first time, and he practically fell out of his chair. I told you, doctor, that I, I had no knowledge uh, other than the fact that I was the recipient of this great blessing. Well, I've, it's one of my favorite stories, George. We sent out energy from the uh, studio. You weren't aware what was going on. I was describing the energy going through your shoulders, down your spine, yes. to your pelvis. Yes. And we were recounting what was going on at that moment because I was clairvoyantly watching you from above in your car. 
and um, I find it as, as a great story that there you were thinking you were having a heart attack when yes. you're receiving a miracle blessing. It's an amazing story. I love it. Well, but, and but this one I think tops that one. Well, listen, we'll take a time out. We'll come back, Georgia. Can you uh, can you hang a, uh, I'll be out a little? I'm most happy. I, just being close to this gentleman makes me feel good. All right, Dr. Douglas James Cottrell is with us, best known as a trans clairvoyant, spiritual healer, teacher, published author, and uh, we'll tell you about his new book, as well as his uh, recent tour of Spain when The Conspiracy Show returns here on the big broadcast. Stay with us. Obviously, we have to be careful about tossing around terms like medical miracle. However, um, in the last five years, I'm pretty certain I've witnessed two of them. And both of them involve the gentleman seated across from me, uh, George Genescu, who hosts Big Band Sunday Night and uh, the program that precedes The Conspiracy Show here on AM 740, our flagship station. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, George told me that he had stomach cancer. I sent an email to my good friend, remote viewer, trans clairvoyant, medical intuitive, healer, Dr. Douglas James Cottrell, who was in Spain at the time. He promised to immediately send out some healing energy. He did. A couple of days later, George Genescu informs me, no cancer, and more importantly, perhaps, no pain for the first time in three and a half months. I'm sorry, Richard. I want to be very clear. I have not had medical proof that I can point a finger or to show that I now have no cancer. I know in my heart I have no cancer. But the pain is gone. The pain is gone, and the discomfort that came with it is gone. Uh, in a couple of weeks, I, I, I haven't yet had the results of the blood test spoken to me or the MRI, and I'm, I'm anticipating a CAT scan. I also have a meeting with a cardiologist, with which went awry. The... They screwed it up, unfortunately, and I waited six weeks for it, and I don't know how long I'm going to have to wait now. The thing is, I am so comfortable with believing the doctor. I have such faith in what he does or has done, and uh, I, I can only say that, that uh, I would send any of my dearest friends uh, to him for a healing because it happens. Well, that's the whole secret, George. My motto is faith is built upon belief and belief is built upon evidence. You have to have evidence of the spiritual world or uh, you then have theories and you can't really believe. Although you might claim you do, you hope that your beliefs are right. But in order to have uh, faith, you have to believe in something where you have evidence. And evidence in the physical world is the immediate removal of pain, uh, the improvement you had uh, a few years ago when you had that instant healing, even oh. though you were unexpecting it, you were driving up Highway 11 and we were in the studio someplace. Uh, we have a, a center in, in Hamilton. It's called the Mini Mansion Spiritual Center. And the Baroness and her family have uh, donated the funds to purchase this building. We're just a fledgling place. We're, of course, experiencing all kinds of growing pains and trying to get it established. And I'm at the same time being called around the world in different places like Argentina and Poland and uh, uh, Norway and Spain and things like that. Uh, as I travel more of the world, it's, it's showing people that God is everywhere. And uh, we try to get people to come to um, uh, Hamilton to our Mini Mansion Spiritual Services. And people can look at MMSCI.org, by the way, if they want to see the calendar. We're just, just growing there, but we want to Would you say people. that again, please? You're it's it's a Mini Mansion Spiritual Center. 
and it's an incorporated nonprofit company, and it's also a registered charity. Uh, so the uh, the website's mmsci.org. So if we're just we're just starting out, and we're open to people from all faiths who want to come there and experience spiritual healing, learn how to do it. So it's a place. Uh, 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 for people to come in, you know, our area. It's not too far away. Hamilton's 45 minutes away. George, uh, when you uh, told me uh, last week that you're you're feeling great, no more pain, and you suspect that the, the, the cancer is gone, yes. uh, I said, well, let's bring Douglas in here anyway and do a laying on of hands. And oh. you said, great, because I'm a wreck. Because you have, a, you know, let's admit I it. I have a number have, of things. Yeah, you have a, a, a The doctor of, addressed those about half hour ago. Uh, my heart, you know, I've had a, a multiple bypass 12 years ago, so, you know, there's no warranty uh, that I'm going to continue. Uh, and and uh, the, they're searching out diabetes, and, and I told him about this dizziness, and I, I'm so interested because he was so quick to respond, Dr. May I impose on you? When I said I have this dizziness, which I'm taking pills for, you said... I told you it was a vertigo, it was a brain circulation problem. Uh, when we laid hands on you, we went through the body, starting with the abdomen or solar plexus. We you did this before you came on air just yes. in the other studio, yes. a laying on of hands, right. And George responded as the energy went through his abdomen, through his heart, into his neck, and then into his head. And when he got to the head, he almost fell on me. With a, he was wobbling back and forth. Do you remember that, George? I remember being very... Uh, Wobbly, that's for sure. But I don't remember. Well, you are so. Well, you are. You you're were, so calm about this, doctor. This well, blows well, me away. I expected a little more histrionics, but none, none of that. Well, we do it every day, George. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm like a, a Catholic priest. I'm on call all the time. Obviously, in Spain, I don't get any rest. Richard's emailing me up with special requests. <laughs> <laughs> there for, you go, wow. Richard. <laughs> for people of interest. But the uh, the idea is that uh, when you were doing it, you reported tingling in your in your fingers yes. and you were wobbling. And uh, if um, you know, if somebody would subscribe to our newsletter, we have pictures of my recent uh, healing event in Barcelona where people actually pass out and they faint on the floor. Uh, we have people to catch them if should that happen, and it happens regularly. And they go to a uh, altered state of consciousness, let's call it, and the healing occurs. They get up, they're pain-free. Uh, we have four testimonials in this last trip of genuine miracles. Again, wow. accelerated, complete uh, removal of pain or suffering. So this is something I'm teaching people. and it's something I've done all my life. My teacher was Reverend Alec Holmes, who's passed away. And uh, it's, it's I know an Alec Holmes who was in uh, uh, Sault Ste. Marie. Well, this man was from Cairo, Michigan, actually. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, that that would be Alec. Well, maybe then that's the same one. But obviously, you've received something just half an hour ago. You could feel the energy going through Could your I body. ever? This is not faith healing, which is holy moly, you're going to be better sometime. This is immediate, and you can feel the energy going in or the healing forces. And this comes from the divine. I always give credit. I always ask for the name of the Holy Family or Jesus or Mary. Uh, I am, it's a Christian background I have, but it also uh, allows the divine, other divine beings, to, you know, interdimensional beings called angels and things like that to participate. And something has happened to you, George. You responded like most other people. You could feel the energy going through the body, but you were wobbling. You were in that alpha state of mind. So my response tells you that I received the, the blessing or the healing. And I can feel the energy leaving my hands. Uh, usually the recipients of the energy feel heat 
on their head. If I put my hands on their head, they'll feel some sensation. Energy crisis? What energy crisis? Exactly. (laughs) Uh, I'll be very interested to hear, uh, George, when you go in for your next checkup concerning your heart valve. Yes. And uh, the diabetes. Valves. Valves. All right. Uh, you know, what they have to say, if you wouldn't mind sharing that with me. Yeah, well, when my, my GP is marvelous. In fact, that I want to say for GPs everywhere, they're overworked and underappreciated. The, he has done wonders he, from, you know, saving me from my heart 12 years ago, getting me into a cardiologist and to where Dr. Daniel Bonneau at, at uh, uh, St. Michael's cut me open and you know, did a quadruple bypass. Uh, so I'm, I'm all for GPs, and I trust my own GP explicitly. But that trust is very different than what I feel for the for the doctor or from the doctor, because the, the humi- from this doctor, Doctor yeah, Cottrell, yeah. yeah. from this from his humility, I, I take tremendous strength. I, I've never met anyone that has the ability to do such great things. And has no ego about it. Did you tell your physicians what, what happened? No. No. You're no. not going to share that with The me. one I'm going to, uh, you know, when I run into the office in my tennis shorts. And, uh, but I, I'm waiting. Uh, once I have the meeting with my cardiologist, then, then I will, uh, I'll be able to brag. Uh, Douglas, I want to ask you quickly about uh, you have a new book out, uh, The uh, Complete New Age Medical Guide. Tell us about that. Well, it's a book. It's 30 years in the making. My son, uh, Douglas, who has a master's in English literature, has been uh, putting together the information that we've been uh, obtaining through this DTM meditation method that we use. It's like Edgar Cayce's uh, um, information. And by the way, I'll be in New York City starting this Friday, June the 13th to the 24th. Uh, and I'll be – this is for the first time anybody like me has been uh, – invited to the Edgar Cayce uh, Center in New York City. So it's a big, big thing in my career to go there and a big honor because Edgar Cayce was the uh, meditative clairvoyant who was able to give medical information. And Ross Peterson was my mentor and, and teacher. And there's another man, Paul Solomon, who, uh, who was doing the same thing that I did not meet. And I'm going there to talk about uh, a variety of things and about my book. And this particular book... Uh, we're pre-selling it. We're giving a discount, huge discount on it now. It'll be out by the end of the summer. And it's going to have everything you need to know from this source of information, which is credible. It's information that has been obtained from the divine. It's put together in a practical way. And it's right now uh, pre-selling very well. So if people are interested, they can go to my website, douglasjamescottrell.com, and have a look at it. It's right on the front page and, and make up their own mind. But this is a book that gives uh, information on all the diseases, uh, um, information that is basically, I can say, obtained from very few sources, and it addresses some of the major concerns people have in their health. It addresses things physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. It's a fantastic book, if I don't say so myself, but I'm not bragging. It is really a good book. People should have it. The Complete New Age Medical Guide, and the website again, Douglas James Cottrell. Let me spell the last name. C-O-T-T-R-E-L-L, Douglas James Cottrell, all one word, dot com. And again, the book is The Complete New Age Health Guide. I think I said medical guide. It's The Complete New Age Health Guide. Well, George, how you feeling? I'm feeling fine. I got to get on the road and get home. 
and have a couple of biscuits and my cup of tea. All right. Well, I will send you on your way. And uh, well, listen, thanks for uh, for hanging in after your uh, Richard. Your thank shift. you. Your efforts uh, got me in touch with this miracle worker. He hates me for saying he doesn't hate. I'm sorry. I'm sure he doesn't like me saying that. No, it's okay, George. You can say anything you like. Uh, uh, people have uh, called me many things, and it's, mu- it's much better to be called something like that than some of the other things people say about me. So, there is so much disbelief. Is that well, there there are people out there in the world, and and Richard and I have I've been we've been doing radio for decades. And there is there is a, a certain uh, dark side, as there always is. And I'm a light worker compared to a dark worker. And the the spiritual world is so foreign to people. We should be trained in church and, and school and different places about the spiritual world. And this is what I do for a living. When I discovered that the spiritual world really existed, I was so excited. And then I kept meeting very talented people. But there's a dark side. There there are people who aren't really telling the truth. They're taking advantage of people. And uh, so I always say be very, very skeptical of who you're dealing with. Have people been in the in this uh, area of work for a long time? What did they do before? I used to work for the Toronto Daily Star newspaper. I resigned when I was uh, 28 years of age, 27 actually. By the time I was 28, I was on my own. And I devoted my life to this kind of work. I was in my 20s, think about that. So when you look at people who have made a sacrifice, who have devoted themselves to the work, that they're honest and they have a long clientele, uh, then you can start to believe that, uh, well, maybe I should investigate this person. But go slow, uh, always be skeptical, and remember, faith is built upon belief and belief is built upon evidence. I have a ton of books on my website, douglasjamescottrell.com, and one of the best uh, books that I can suggest as a a primer is Masterful Prayers. These are prayers that really work. Well, really can anybody work. learn to do what you do? Just about anybody. I say just about because there are some people who are atheists. They don't believe in anything. They don't want to learn. But anybody uh, who would like to come and take a class or, or meet me, I show them. I can make the invisible visible by showing them how energy works. I can demonstrate clairvoyance, telepathy, uh, clairaudience, and uh, premonition, precognition, dream interpretation, all the things that are listed in the book of Corinthians as spiritual gifts. So people are interested, yes, I can teach them. What do you say to the skeptics who say that energy can't be measured, therefore it can't exist? Well, George just measured it today. He felt the energy, his pain disappeared, and some people have said to me, well, that's the power of suggestion. Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Maybe Who cares? Something. It yeah, works. It that's works. right. Yeah, it works. That's all I'm, that's all I'm uh, concerned about. But I've dedicated my life to this, and I have seen countless miracles, not just one or two, many. And I don't go around bragging about it. I don't document them all, but people have sent me letters, and we know from the evidence that this really does work. So the skeptics are out there. I say, oh, it's okay. Be skeptical. What is to be skeptical? open-minded, look at it, and try to understand it. The other people determined to say, I'm a skeptic, I don't believe anything. Well, that's that's not true. That's a lie. You're not a skeptic. You're just somebody who doesn't want to believe. But if you're skeptical, like I was, and I still am to this very day, show me. Let me see the evidence. Let well, you see. showed me, and you showed my good friend, George sure Genescu. Thank you so much, Douglas. Thank you. Well, Good my to pleasure. See you again. It's always a pleasure to be on your show, Richard. You know, you're 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 crusading for truth all the time, and uh, George has uh, somehow uh, received a blessing from the divine. And, and this is my payment. This is what I don't ask for payment. This is all done for free. You know, spiritual healing is done for free, and this is what I like to see that somebody has a blessing. It makes my life. 
uh, the complete New Age Health Guide. And it's douglasjamescottrell.com. Thank you again, my friend. George, on your bike. The Conspiracy Show. Hey, Rosemary Ellen Guiley in our Paranormal News Roundup. When The Conspiracy Show continues. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Welcome back. A couple of weeks ago, I instituted a, a new segment on the program. Once a month, we bring in our, invest, our paranormal investigator, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, and uh, we walk through some uh, stories uh, of the paranormal variety, and we've got a basket full of them for you tonight. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is one of the world's leading experts on the paranormal, with more than 50 books published by major houses on a wide range of paranormal, spiritual, and mystical topics, including nine single-volume encyclopedias. Her work is translated into 15 languages. She's worked full-time in the paranormal since 1983, researching, investigating, writing, and presenting, and teaching. Her present work focuses on interdimensional entity contact experiences of all kinds and uh, technical and mediumistic spirit communications. Hey, Rosemary, how are you? Well, I'm doing very well, Richard. It's busy season for me, and I'm out on the road a lot, traveling around doing conferences and conventions. That's right. You just got back from Vermont at a, from a, a Dowser's conference. How did that go? It was a wonderful event. It was my third time this year, or this year was my third time at the American uh, Society of Dowsers, and I gave a big presentation on dowsing angels, which um, I've created some tools for doing that. Uh, this conference gets several hundred people every year, and they're quite enthusiastic about all kinds of metaphysical topics. And then when you set it in a place like Vermont, and this is very close to the Canadian border, it's up in Lindenville, uh, the scenery is just spectacular. So uh, everything combined is just a wonderful weekend. Oh, it sounds like a great event. I'll have to get down there one of these days. Listen, uh, what a uh, a bounty of uh, amazing stories on the paranormal front. I wanted to get your take on uh, these investigators in, in Russia uh, that are rather baffled by uh, unexplained and gruesome deaths of Russian college students. Now, this happened decades ago, but they've come up with a new suspect, a rather interesting and unlikely suspect. It's a pretty thin case for the Yeti, which is what they've come up with. And uh, I watched the documentary on it and uh, remained unconvinced. And I'm always willing to, to give a very liberal benefit of the doubt to uh, a lot of paranormal theories, but this one was just way too much of a stretch. These students who went out uh, uh, camping, um, who were then all discovered uh, gruesomely killed, uh, it happened in 1959. There was a long stretch of time before the bodies were found. All sorts of things could have happened to them. And to blame it on Sasquatch, I just thought that's way too much. We don't have any evidence, really, that Sasquatch goes around on rampages killing people. And um, the, the researchers who hold to the interdimensional theory on uh, Bigfoot, and as I do myself, uh, have always stated that they believe that these uh, creatures are very benevolent and not hostile. So um, I'm just very, very skeptical about this angle. Why did it take them so long to come up with a suspect like the Yeti? This happened, as you say, back in the uh, sort of the height of the Cold War in the late 50s. If I had to, to speculate on a reason, it looked like uh, somebody was casting around for uh, a story to hang 
uh, a theory on. And uh, the evidence that was produced for this in the documentary uh, I found unconvincing. Uh, I didn't like the documentary much itself. It reminded me uh, of the Blair Witch Project with um, you know, a lot of uh, recreated footage that was supposed to look genuine and um, screams and whatnot thrown in. Uh, it was just a little over the top. So uh, it just l- looked to me like a, a put-together story. Uh, and, uh, I mean, what are, what are the other... <clears throat> is anyone offering any um, alternative uh, a theory as to what happened to these college students? I mean, again, going back to the Cold War... Uh, there could have been some skullduggery there. Well, one of them that was put forward was that uh, the natives who live in the area, who are very um, hostile to people invading their turf, that they were, were killed by uh, the indigent people there, and that's, that's quite plausible. Uh, other theories that have been put forward was that they were killed uh, because there was some sort of secret research going on for... Uh, weaponry, uh, unusual weaponry, and they might have even been killed by that weaponry. Um, we don't really know enough on on that angle. Uh, so it, it is a very mysterious case where these, these students were uh, unfortunately killed, and there are some very strange circumstances around it. We'll probably never know the truth. But definitely, as far as you're concerned, not the Yeti responsible for the not, deaths. Not a paranormal explanation. All right. Well, listen, we'll, we'll take a time out. When we come back, I, I want to talk to you about uh, this mythological creature from Japan. I mean, uh, you know, British kids, of course, grow up with, uh, grow up with uh, the legend of, of Loch Ness. In Japan, they have their own version. It's a water demon. Apparently, someone's found some remains of what might be this mythological kappa, which are about to go on display in Japan. And we'll also talk about an angel who saved British troops during World War I, a three-year-old who remembers some rather disturbing details uh, about his past life and something right up your alley, Rosemary, and that is the mysterious fairy circles. Uh, We'll uh, get to all of that and much more when Rosemary Ellen Guiley stays with us after this timeout. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. And we are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. So, uh, some rather strange pictures I saw online via the Daily Mail in the UK. Uh, the, they appear to be uh, the bones of a, of a claw and perhaps uh, a rear leg. Uh, I'm not sure, but uh, some, some people are convinced that these are the remains of something called the Kappa, a water demon from ancient folklore uh, that was kind of a... Well, a green and scaly creature with webbed feet looks a little bit like a human. What do you make of this story, Rosemary? Uh, A little bit of this and a little bit of that. Uh, I am a believer in uh, these entities who share the planet with us, and uh, they range from demonic entities to, you know, fairies and uh, gnomes and trolls and things like that. And I do believe that there are these beings who share the planet with us. Many of them are tricksters. The Kappa are water uh, spirits, uh, sometimes called water demons, that have a trickster nature. Uh, They're very similar to other kinds of uh, creatures in fairy lore that uh, live in watery areas and uh, jump out at people and scare them or pull them under the water and try and drown them. Uh, But even though these creatures exist, I'm convinced that they do, I don't think we're going to find physical remains of them because they're not physical creatures. Ah, they're, right, right. Uh, 
uh, they're beings who uh, who live in an, another dimension, and uh, people can experience them, but we never really find any solid evidence for them. So my take on it is uh, the kappa are real, but I'm uh, skeptical of the remains that are found uh, because I don't think that they would belong to the kappa. So what do you think these remains are, some sort of a giant lizard? Well, uh, there were some experts speculating that um, these might be some sort of like giant salamander or natural water creature that, um, y- you know, just look weird because of the way they've been preserved. They look, um, uh, you know, they're all bare of flesh and, and they look uh, almost like fossils in a way. Uh, so we could be looking at natural remains that have become kind of distorted and strange looking because of um, you know, the way they've, uh, they've eroded over time. Um, the spirits, I think, will continue to pester people, uh, but we'll, we'll never find uh, physical remains for them because there aren't any to find. All right. Let's, uh, so that's two strikes. <laughs> no Yeti killing the, uh, the Russian college students and the remains of the uh, Japanese water demon, uh, probably a fraud. Uh, let's talk about – this is a remarkable story. Of course, we, we just um, commemorated the 70th anniversary of the D-Day landing in Europe, which was sort of the beginning of the end of World War II. So let's dial it back to World War I, an amazing story about an angel reporting to have saved British troops – uh, and now it's being speculated it wasn't an angel. Perhaps it was a UFO. Set the table for us, Rosemary. This is a very complicated story, and I uh, investigated it myself some years ago uh, for the Encyclopedia of Angels that I wrote, and I have a lengthy article on this very topic, so I was excited to see this story. And um, it's so complex with so many angles, and actually the UFO angle has some merit to it because of some of the visions that were seen by these soldiers. Uh, Now, uh, there were a variety of visions that were uh, reported after uh, this battle, and uh, they were seen by Germans, French, and British alike. Uh, Some saw uh, a man on a white horse who was uh, said to be St. George, who rides out to the rescue of the British people at times of need. Uh, Other people saw phantom soldiers. Uh, Some saw uh, angel shapes, uh, that is, uh, glowing um, human-like forms with outstretched wings. Others saw glowing lights in the sky. Um, There were uh, visions of soldiers that seemed to be projected into the clouds. Some of these stories um, were believed to be the product of suggestion or even hallucination, uh, that once the report started coming in, it uh, some people believed that it just stimulated more to say, oh, yeah, I think I saw that too. Uh, and then there was an author of a short story uh, called The Bowman of Mons. that um, was entirely fiction about uh, phantom uh, soldiers who come to the rescue of the Allied forces. And uh, he went public and said, uh, this is all based on my story. My story came out right after this battle, and uh, people are taking fiction and turning it into, uh, you know, real accounts. But the weird thing is, Richard, that there were so many accounts from so many sources that we can't write them all off as some sort of mass hallucinations or even mass suggestion. 
so something very strange happened during this battle. And, uh, you know, we have other cases where uh, soldiers who are under the, this incredible stress of, of fighting uh, have had visionary uh, experiences, sometimes with helping beings like um, individuals who seem to be very human-like, moving among the wounded, helping them. And that also was reported um, uh, at Mons, too. Uh, ministering to the wounded soldiers, and then nobody knows who these individuals are, and so the explanation for it is, is angels. In this particular so, case, though, Rosemary, uh, how did this apparition or angel or ET or wherever, whatever it was, how did it specifically come to the aid of, the, of these British soldiers during this battle? Well, the lights that um, modern researchers are saying might be UFOs, uh, they did not come down and move around among the trenches. They were seen up in the sky. And um, this was, um, there was one report of a this strange light in the sky that had an outline to it, and it wasn't, um, it, it wasn't the moon. And uh, this was seen by multiple men, and this light became brighter and brighter, just like a UFO uh, report today. Uh, but what they said was that the light separated into three different spheres. And now we have that in UFO reports, too, where lights separate and, and uh, recombine. But they said in this case, after uh, separating the three spheres, they took the shape of angels. Uh, and they had these large outstretched wings, and they wore long, loose, flowing golden garments. So that really doesn't match up with present-day UFO reports. There are some similarities. Um, so the question is, do, uh, were, were people interpreting these? Um, uh, there wasn't talk of UFOs, of course, back in World War I, so were people looking at lights that we would call UFOs now, but uh, back then the interpretation would be uh, angels. Sure. Yeah, this is like 30 years uh, before light. Kenneth Arnold, so... Yeah, they would exactly, and uh, you know the the argument has similarly been made for some of the descriptions of bright lights and uh, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, and biblical accounts, for example, that um, people were really dealing with with alien craft. But one question is, why would alien beings come and intervene in a battle anyway? Um, we we don't really have a pattern of reported activity for that sort of intervention. We do for angels, sure. uh, where angelic beings come and uh, intervene or, or at least minister um, in, in battles. Uh, but it's not characteristic of ETs and UFO accounts. So. No, I, I, I definitely would cast my vote uh, for the angels on this one. I want to get your take on this story. This is... Uh, it's it's fascinating, it's somewhat disturbing, all rolled into one, and that is this three-year-old boy in the Golan Heights region near the border of Syria and Israel, three years old, and he said he was, in a previous life, he has memories of being murdered with an axe, and he actually showed village elders where the murderer buried his body. Amazing story, it, Rosemary. It is an absolutely astounding story, and it is well done. This kind of story is well documented in reincarnation literature, uh, especially in other cultures. This boy uh, comes from the Druze culture, and they have very strong reincarnation beliefs and even traditions for 
um, trying to help a child find their past life roots. If a child begins talking about a past life, it's very encouraged. Well, here's a child who, uh, as soon as he could talk, started uh, talking about having memories of having been hit in the head and killed with an axe. And he takes people to the grave, even identifies the killer by name. And the man denies it until all the evidence is uncovered, and then he did admit to the crime. Uh, Now, this other person was a full-grown man when he was killed and uh, evidently reincarnated right away. There are many other cases of young children having very detailed past life memories, and they they also have recalled the way they died, the, the good things and the bad things they did to people, and they can be very uh, specific in their detail about where they lived, what their names were, who other people were in their lives. Uh, it's really very strong evidence uh, for the case for reincarnation. I'll say, I mean, in this case, uh, the little boy, as you say, he remembered the uh, the man's full name, and then when he was confronted, as you could imagine, the accused face turned ashen white and denied it. Uh, but then he actually... Um, uh, took the elders of the village to the to where the body was buried, which you mentioned, and in that very spot they found a man's skeleton with a wound to the head that corresponded to the boy's birthmark. Uh, that's amazing. The wound in the head corresponded to the boy's birthmark. And they also found the axe, the murder weapon. This is uh, another characteristic that's been well documented in the literature, the uh, matching of a birthmark to a wound from a previous life, especially a killing wound. And uh, many cases, bullet wounds, knife wounds, here we have an axe wound. Um, and it, it is very interesting that it seems to be in the next life, the person has some sort of physical scar uh, that's a, a trace from that from that past life. Well, if so true... a very solid case here. Yes, yes. I mean, if true, uh, this to me would be right up there. I would think this would even surpass the case of that little boy in Seattle uh, who was um, in a previous life believed he was a U.S. fighter pilot during the Second World War, named the aircraft carrier, named the sort of the uh, the, the arena where the battle took place in the South Pacific, and uh, the, the pilot's name. Although later we learned that the, the, the boy's father frequently took the boy to a sort of an aeronautics museum, so which casts some doubt on that story. Well, he, he may have, uh, speculating, he may have taken them there because the boy had a, a very pronounced interest in that sort of thing, which could have been a carryover from a past life, too. That's very true. And uh, that uh, reincarnation does explain unusual interests like that that manifest early in life. But uh, this is a very solid case, and it's very hard to refute uh, reincarnation when you have... Uh, evidence like this. I'll say. It's a fascinating story, and I appreciate your perspective on it. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, always good to speak with you. We'll talk again next month. Thank you, Richard. Good night. VisionaryLiving.com is Rosemary's website. All right, and that is it. Uh, My thanks to Tim Spreen for technical production. Thanks to uh, Dr. Douglas James Cottrell, and of course, our very dear friend George Ginescu for uh, for sharing his remarkable story. Uh, and I will be back next week with the remarkable story of Anita Dittman trapped in Hitler's hell, 
Hope you'll be along for that. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.